You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in. And uh, this is David's pick uh, on Thursday mornings. And we've got a special guest, uh, our friend Fred Boyles. And uh, he's got an interesting topic we're going to go into. But before we get to uh, talking to Fred, we're going to do our normal thing, which is take one moment of silence and... uh, Think of all of our friends that have given the ultimate sacrifice and pray for those that are on duty now and will be retiring. So we'll be back right after this, and then we'll play one of our, uh, my favorites, the Cadence Calls. We'll be back, and if you don't mind, we'll take our silent moment of prayer. And I hope you'll join us. And uh, remember that on our website, we also have a memorial to my good friend, J. Roy Ritchie, that uh, died recently from effects of Agent Orange. And we started a veteran-to-veteran pray list. And uh, if you're a veteran or if you have a friend or relative that's a veteran and needs prayer, just send us their names and we'll be glad to... uh, Aram and pray for him. And we do thank you. And uh, Fred, thank you for joining us again. And we're going to do that little cadence call. We all appreciate cadence calls, or at least I think we do. Okay, that's enough of that. And uh, I can remember that one uh, in the rain, as a matter of fact. And we certainly in Atlanta today have had our fair share of good morning rain, spring rain. Uh, and uh, I guess everything else will be booming, blooming. But uh, it is sort of nice to uh, get the pollen washed off a little bit. So, good morning, Fred. Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, we uh, we appreciate you being on, and we're taking a little bit of a uh, of a venture. I guess we could call it southward a little bit, maybe, or, or whatever you want to title it. But uh, we do know about our veterans, and that. You know, the Hanoi Hilton we know about from Vietnam and uh, our many different uh, men and I believe one woman at this point uh, that uh, was in the in the Desert Shield or Desert Storm. and uh, But POWs and Fred, because I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sort of going to turn it over to you and I'll butt in every now and then and and ask one of my infamous 
questions, sometimes they're okay, and sometimes they show my uh, the real me. Stupid. But anyway, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you explain. Uh, you're you're a uh, a veteran uh, from the Navy, and uh, then you got involved down south of Atlanta in Andersonville. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, hey, thanks, David. Um, so, yes, I, I had a uh, long career for 30-plus years with the National Park Service, which is, of course, our uh, the keeper of America's uh, natural and cultural heritage. Uh, and um, um, during my career, I bounced all around, and I was a reservist, a Navy reservist. And um, um, uh, my longest... Uh, stretch, I guess you would say, at any one place was at Andersonville National Historic Site. And what I what I find is a lot of people, um, Americans, Georgians, uh, don't understand or realize that Andersonville, yes, has this in, in amazing Civil War story, which is uh, incredible in and of itself. Uh, but it's much, much more because when Congress. Uh, passed the law in 1970, uh, President Nixon signed it into law that created the National Historic Site there. It also put in the statute that this would be the memorial to all prisoners of war in American history. And uh, so that is from the American Revolution until we decide not to have wars anymore. And uh, uh, so... Um, the historic site is, uh, again, so much more than just this uh, story of, of Camp Sumter, the official name of Andersonville Prison that was operated by the Confederacy for 14 months uh, from early 1864 until the end of the war in 1865. Um, it's also uh, somewhat, I guess you would say, an uh, infamous story because uh, Andersonville is is generally um, uh, uh, recognized as uh, the worst prisoner of war camp in the Civil War. And, and I'm reluctant to say that because a lot of times people will get upset. And they'll say, well, the camps in the North were really bad, too, where Confederates were held. And they were. They were, in fact, terrible. Um, and um, the death rates at Andersonville, as well as other camps, uh, were way too high. They never needed to be that high. And um, um, so it, they were um, they were just terrible, terrible places. But as, as James McPherson, perhaps the most preeminent Civil War scholar today, says Andersonville was in a class all by itself. Um, and it was. It, it really was. Uh, just some basics about the prison. And, and what it was, the uh, um, and just some simple stuff. Uh, it was placed in uh, southwest Georgia because they wanted to be away from the fighting. Uh, they needed rail access to get uh, prisoners in and out and supplies in and out. Uh, and they wanted to be away from a population center. In other words, they wanted to be in an isolated rural area. And... Uh, uh, and so they basically just found a spot and built a 16 and a half acre pen 
and the pen was with a fence of log walls, uh, of logs put in the ground, so that the logs, uh, they were roughly 22 feet long and 5 feet in the ground, so roughly 16, 17 feet tall. Uh, the, the original design was going to hold 6,000 prisoners. They later revised it up to 10,000. And um, um, by the time they figured out they needed to expand it, they were already at 25,000 prisoners. Mm. I, I can't imagine the living conditions that that would have... Yes, and it's very, very hard for people today to un, to kind of get... Uh, you know, a feeling for it uh, as well. Um, but anyway, so 16 and a half acres. And so in June, they decide to basically expand it out and they go to one side and add another 10 acres on. So that makes it 26 and a half acres. And, uh, uh, and so by the time uh, mid August comes around, the prison population is just shy of 33,000. Mm. So when you take the prisoners and you add in the guards, the Confederate guards that are there, um, which are um, a significant number, well over a thousand, uh, by in, in August of '64, Andersonville Prison is the fifth largest city in the Confederate States. Um, it's pretty close to being fourth. <laughs> so mm. it it is. Uh, um, it is just an enormous place of people densely packed into this very tight space. And everything you can imagine that could go wrong went wrong. Whether it was food, sanitation, clothing, shelter, medical care, everything was just, um, just uh, uh, it was a complete breakdown. Uh, and so much so that by, uh, and they rec- the Confederates recognize it, and they recognize that they're just failing miserably. Uh, there's, there's, interestingly enough, we all know about inspector generals. Uh, well, the uh, department, the Confederate Army inspector general sent a guy to go look into all of this, and he wrote a scathing report just saying, you know, this is gross mismanagement. Uh, so even the, like I said, the Confederate government understood it. But it was, it was a liberating raid from the north, uh, which the Confederates were always afraid of, which actually scared them into um, getting prisoners out, and they started dispersing the prison population beginning in September. Now the prison continued to operate all the way into uh, April and May, uh, when it's liberated of 1865. But the numbers are significantly down. Uh, um, but again, it, it's just everything that could go wrong went wrong. Fred, and, who was who was in charge of Andersonville uh, during this time? Yes, yes. And uh, so, did he, he or she or whoever it was? I assume a he uh, was he there the whole time? No. Um, so, like so many things. Uh, it's complicated. Uh, the real person who you could probably put a finger on the most and say this is the person is in charge is a uh, general, John Winder. Uh, we all 
know about a, a town in Georgia named for Winder. Um, and, uh, um, but Winder's the guy in charge. He's a career Army officer, um, and he's um, uh, a very, uh, you know, he's, 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 you know, generally seen as a person who's relatively competent, uh, but he's, he's sort of beyond the age of being able to take up the rigors of battle, you know, being on the battlefield. And so he's he kind of evolves into this into this job, uh, first in Richmond, but then later uh, in, in in Georgia. And and he's not just in charge of Andersonville; he's in charge of other prisons as well. But Andersonville's the big one. And um, um, but he had sort of, I guess you almost might say, the unfortunate luck of he died of a heart attack. In um, in the winter of 1865, when he was over in Millen, Georgia, inspecting one of the new camps that was being built for the overflow, uh, it's called Camp Lawton, and so um, he probably would have been in big trouble had he survived uh, to the end of the Civil War. Um, but the guy who gets all the credit for the bad things at Andersonville is a fellow named Heinrich Wirtz. Captain Heinrich Wirtz, and uh, uh, he is uh, there at Andersonville in May of 1865 when the when the camp is liberated, and he is taken to Washington D.C. and in the late summer and fall of 1865, uh, he is tried, convicted, and executed for war crimes. Wow. It is a enormous case. All of the newspapers are following it day by day by day, and it is a uh, it's a huge trial. It's a military commission. It's not a civil trial, uh, and so uh, in fact, the 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 person in charge of it is a guy who we've all heard about. His name was General Union General Lou Wallace. Mm -hmm. uh, who later went on to write uh, the most uh, popular uh, novel in American history, Ben-Hur. And oh. uh, uh, Lou Wallace preside, presides over this trial. And the trial becomes sort of the pattern of what to do and what not to do uh, later at the end of World War II in Nuremberg and... Uh, in Japan and Tokyo when uh, those war criminals were tried. And so that's why I often say that the, the implications of Andersonville and what happened uh, go far beyond the Civil War. It literally, uh, Civil War prisons and how to treat prisoners uh, and, and, and the kind of the lesson, the terrible lesson of Andersonville uh, has an enormous impact on world history. Oh, I guess. Uh, Fred, I need to stop you there, and uh, we need to take our first break. And sure. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, it's a shame we're not getting what we should in our history books, and I've stated that over and over again many, many times. And uh, like you said, it's not just 
Georgia history or American history. It's world history at this point. But we'll be back with Fred in just a moment right after a couple of messages. Former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. And I want to remind everyone that you're listening to America's Web Radio. And we appreciate you listening. I want to add to what uh, Rick was just saying about the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. They're going to be having their induction ceremony for the 2020 class uh, April the 3rd. It'll start at 2 o'clock. It's going to be held in Johns Creek in Newtown Park, where the Healing Wall is. And if you haven't been to the Healing Wall, we certainly recommend that you go. It's the replica of the veteran or Vietnam Veterans Wall in Washington, D.C. And uh, we learned yesterday in the same area, uh, they're going to be uh, putting a memorial in for the veterans of Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So we're delighted. We were delighted to hear that. That will be, uh, they're hoping to have groundbreaking very shortly. But April the 3rd, mark it on your calendar. And uh, as Rick White always says, bring your own box of Kleenex as you'll hear some incredible stories. And uh, Fred, I believe you said you're going to be there. Absolutely. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll be able to get your. 8x10 glossy and your signature signed 8x10 glossy, is that right? <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody wants that but oh. anyway. So. Oh, you never know. You never know. <laughs> okay, so we're back in uh, Andersonville and uh, I, I, like I said as we were going to break, it's it's incredible that we we don't know more about the history and the effects worldwide of what happened in Andersonville. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn it back to you and keep learning. Yeah, they, um, one of the kind of interesting things that 
that happens uh, before Andersonville is opened is that um, um, President Lincoln and uh, you don't hear this name a lot. Everybody knows about Grant and Sherman and all in the Union Army. But to General Halleck, who is kind of, he's, I won't, he's like the closest thing you might say to the chief of staff of, or, or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that we have today. So he's kind of Lincoln's, um, you know, right under the Secretary of War. Uh, and and uh, uh, he's his top armed uh, or uniformed uh, military person. And Halleck um, is very concerned about a number of issues and uh, and and talks to Lincoln about those things. Um, and, and one of the first drivers is, what about guerrilla warfare? And that's mostly happening over in Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas. Um, and uh, th- there's also a great concern about um, fugitive slaves and what happens when slaves are taken by the Union Army and the Union Army um, uh, under kind of the sort of customs of war, you don't take property. And so the Union is looking at this as, wait a minute, these, this, isn't, these aren't, this isn't property, these are human beings, and we need to, they need to be liberated. And, um, and then eventually, you know, at the same time Lincoln and Halleck are having these discussions, Lincoln has already decided to, on the Emancipation Proclamation, and he's decided uh, a big part of that is going to be uh, raising um, Union regiments made up of black soldiers. And, and this just, the, the Confederacy um, was infuriated by the prospect of this uh, because they saw this as a complete uh, going after their system um, based on, on, on slavery. And so what Halleck and Lincoln do is they reach out to a professor. Hardly anybody's ever heard of this guy, but he's sort of getting a renewed look after a book that was just written a few years ago about him. And his name is uh, Francis or Franz Lieber. He's, he's a Prussian who's lived most of his life in the United States. He's in his 60s. Uh, he had actually lived for 20 years in Columbia, South Carolina, where he taught at, at uh, South Carolina College, which later became the University of South Carolina. And Lieber is asked, uh, now he's at Columbia University, he'd been there a year or two, and he's asked to write up the rules of war. What What is right and what is wrong? And, and so he writes up this a set of rules. He's got a committee of four Union generals to work with, and he does it over the course of, a, of about a month and around Christmas of, of 1862. And in the spring of 1863, that uh, set of rules, 157 uh, rules called the Lieber Code, named for him, is issued as General Order Number 100, and it covers everything. And a big part of it is how prisoners of war would be treated. Things like you feed them, you feed them 
the same way you feed your own army. You take care of them medically. Um, and uh, you, it, it also said you're not going to torture them. Uh, there were other things, like it said you, you're not allowed to rape women. Um, and and um, guerrilla tactics are, uh, it sort of, it, it says those are wrong and you shouldn't do those things uh, because you need to be a uniformed military person. And if you're a spy, you can be hanged and killed. Um, so anyway, it, it, there's the, the Lieber Code is in General Order Number 100 is really the basis of the two Hague Conventions that are held. Uh, I think, I don't remember the year, but one of them was 1907. Uh, and they pretty much guide our, uh, the, the world in World War One and World War Two. So we're, still how today, about... The Army, the Army just issued a, a new directive on the laws of war in 2016. So just, what, four or five years ago, and it credits Lieber as the, the father of all of this. Fred, so, Fred, how much of this is involved in the Geneva Convention? Oh, it is. It is. It is. It's the basis of the Geneva Convention of 1949, which comes, you know, at the end of World War II, where these rules are further refined. And, uh, and they're refined because, you know, things are different, things change, technology is different. And uh, um, and so yeah, it, it's it's Lieber and Halleck and Lincoln. They're the they're the people who give all of this, uh, you know, get it all started. Hmm. Interesting. So um, anyway, um, it's just yeah, it is. It's all fascinating history and. Uh, um, it, and it's important. It gets a little bit geeky and wonky that, you know, you get into all of these details and all. And, and of course, whenever you're talking about Andersonville, too, at times it's very uncomfortable just because you're talking about, um, you know, very, very unpleasant things. You know, things that you just don't want to talk about in polite society. Um, just And, you know, one of the things is that what killed so many of these guys was that uh, they uh, they were fed what's called unbolted cornmeal. That was the they were fed other things, but that was the staple of what they received uh, to eat every day. And what that is is unbolted cornmeal is where the corn is dried corn is ground up cob and all, not just the kernels. Mm. And our bodies, our stomachs, our digestive systems can't digest the cob. It's literally like almost eating broken glass. And so well. it ripped their stomachs mm. uh, up. And uh, and so a lot of them suffered from uh, amoebic dysentery, meaning you're bleeding as uh, in your excrement. Right. And there were intestinal worms, uh, intestinal parasites that were just, you know, in those crowded conditions. And literally the men uh, 
we're walking in excrement all the time. Mm. Fred, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to let people think about that for a minute while we take another break. Uh, but I want to get. You know, when we come back, I want to get more into what we're talking about. So we'll, come, we'll be back with Fred Boyles right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on David's Pick, and our guest today is Fred Boyles, and we're talking about a very terrible time in our history and that was our civil war and our imprisonment in Andersonville of um, Union soldiers and the horrific conditions they lived in. Fred, to your knowledge in in your studying and and it was bad enough just what you were talking about what they were feeding the the prisoners and I can just imagine the intestinal problems, uh, your colon just can't handle the what you were talking about. And like you said, it was like eating glass. But during during the time that Andersonville was open, and you know, you can't help but compare it to today and and uh, the COVID crisis. But was there ever any breakout of anything during the period of of uh, when they were open and? Uh, imprisoning uh, Union soldiers? You mean in terms of diseases? Right, uh, like oh, uh, yeah. the Black yeah. Plague or this yeah. or that or whatever? So, by far, the um, it was just so many things. Um, by far, the most common and what really just the prisoners seemed to write about and those who kept diaries and complain about the most was scurvy. Um, and that's no just fruit. from not, and, and they knew at the time, you know, the importance of vitamin C and, and fresh produce, vegetables and fruits and, and how important they were. Uh, but, um, yeah, scurvy was probably the most prolific and, and, um, um, uh, scurvy is not only 
it's a long, slow process. It's also incredibly painful and difficult, and it just affects your whole body. But smallpox got started uh, within the prison. They were all terribly afraid of that. Um, and uh, But many other diseases as well were, were rampant. And they would, you know, one thing I did not mention is, you know, you, you, at its peak you have 33,000 prisoners in August of 64, but over the course of the prison's history, there are 45, roughly 45,000 uh, that, that go through Andersonville uh, in one form or another. And of that number, 12,920 uh, die. And... Um, um, all of them are buried in the National Cemetery that is there at Andersonville National Historic Site, which is part of the National Cemetery System, uh, some over 150 national cemeteries uh, that are uh, across our country that, you know, is a, are solemn and very, very special places. Uh, anyway, uh, um, that's roughly 29% of the prisoners at Andersonville uh, who die. Um, one of the historians that probably wrote the best book on Andersonville, a guy named William Marvel, uh, he says that number's probably closer to 35% because what it doesn't take into account are those people who suffered greatly at Andersonville, but during that time when they were moving them out, um, they might have died to a day, a few days, two or three days, a week later, and uh, but they weren't at Andersonville when they died, uh, but they died due to the conditions that they um, received while being prisoners at Camp Sumter, Andersonville. Uh, so they were, uh, uh, there were just all kinds of uh, things that um, affected them and uh, from those conditions. But without a doubt, the, the worst thing is just the filth of it all. Uh, there was really no plan. Oh, well, I take that. There was a plan for how to get um, the sewage out of the prison. Uh, it was through the creek that was to bring water into the prison. So it was it was located at that spot uh, because there was this nice little creek that flowed right through the middle. And so the creek where it came in would provide clean drinking water at the, where it came into the prison. And then where it went out, uh, they put in sinks. Uh, sinks is a Civil War term for luch latrine and uh, basically the prisoners would um, go to that spot um, to go to the bathroom and the the problem was that a lot of them never made it there uh, they suffered from diarrhea dysentery and so um, that quickly broke down as well as um, the confederate guard camp was upstream from mm. the prison. Uh, so the Confederate guards uh, were throwing stuff into the creek, and, uh, and so uh, there, were, there were problems with the water that, that, that came in. And even though they had a plan, it just never really was properly implemented. You know, in many of our shows, we've talked to... Vietnam veterans, we've talked to Desert Shield, Desert Storm veterans, and even a couple of Korean veterans, and 
you know, you we, we've talked about particularly Vietnam and and uh, so many coming back with PTSD and so forth and so on. And that you know, the not only was it the conditions, but the realization of how one man could treat another man and uh, some of the atrocities that the North Vietnamese did, not only in prison camps, but also just in the field, in in the field of battle. But then you look at something like Andersonville, and you wonder, you know, this was American on American. And, yeah, I know the North and the South, and you had a Union and the Confederacy and all of this, but still... It's one human to another human, uh, the bottom line, and and you wonder what what both sides were thinking, you know, and particularly the Confederate side, you know, was was there any? Well, let me ask: Was there any religion in the camp? And at the same token, were there any Confederates that uh, tried to help in any way? Yes. Oh, absolutely, and certainly. Uh, faith plays an enormous role in uh, in the in in what happens, uh, and and I there's a sort of a recurring theme of the whole thing of that when you're in a really bad situation, you kind of turn to your back to your your roots and your you know the the, the kind of the, the the ethics and the core of what make make us all a human being and generally that's taught to us by our parents and uh, the people we look up to and so for many of them many of the prisoners um, it was their faith Uh, there's one prisoner's diary that's one of my favorites it was by a fellow named Frederick Augustus James and he was from Massachusetts and he was a sailor in the Navy and um, he he had great faith and wrote about it in his diary um, regularly about how he um, you know how Im- how important it was uh, of his faith and um, they would have services in small ways within the within the camp but they would also and I remember James writes this a lot of times you know it would he would know that on that particular day, it was a Sunday, and how he, how he missed going to church, and he missed his uh, um, those people of his faith that he could be with, and uh, 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 and he longed for that uh, very much. So, um, it, you 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 do read that a lot in in there in the accounts. Uh, so yeah, their faith was very important to them. What, what were what were the guards like? Uh, and you know, I, I realize that you weren't there and you can't describe. But were they just sure. torturous, or were they? Uh... No, no. They um, well, first off, uh, there, there's sort of a basic here, and that is that guard duty at this place. Or at any prison is um, not the best duty, and um, sometimes you might say uh, the best soldiers 
don't end up as guards. Uh, and in the beginning, there are four or five regular units from Georgia and Alabama. Uh, there's an artillery unit from Florida. Cannons are big deal. Uh, and and so those units are there guarding, but all the time the the Confederate authorities are, are saying, we got to get these guys out of here because we need them on the front lines. And so there is a move to bring in what are called the Georgia Reserves. And these are the folks who are not in regular units, but in rather um, these uh, no, no, nothing like the National Guard or the Reserves of today, but literally, you know, people they could grab um, and and uh, within the state and get them to serve. And interestingly enough, a guy named General Howell Cobb, who was quite prominent in national politics as well as uh, um, um, Georgia politics. He is a general at the time, so um, uh, he had been a congressman and uh, cabinet officer before the war in the United States government. And uh, But he's the one who's got to get up the reserves to replace those regular units. And uh, his nemesis, his political enemy, so to speak, is the governor of Georgia, Joe Brown. <laughs> and... And so these two guys are kind of locking horns over who can serve in the Georgia Reserves and who can be exempt. Because you got a lot of people who are like, hmm, do I want to go and fight up at, you know, Chickamauga or, you know, Gettysburg or something like this? I mean, they're all, you know, and they're, uh, and so the governor had, had said if you were, um, if you had a an official position in your in your county government, you were exempt from serving in the Georgia Reserves. And so everybody, you know, was you know the assistant clerk of the court, and you know, getting these jobs uh, that uh, so that they could be exempt from service. And but in the end, they got up enough, and they sent these units back in the Georgia Reserves. Um, um, for most of the time that Andersonville is open, are the principal guards. And these tended to be teenage boys and, I won't say old men, but men in their 40s and 50s. Uh, And, again, they're not the best soldiers just because of their age, lack of experience, and their being along in years. They have some pretty crappy weapons, um, they they don't have the best weapons. Uh, they many of them have what are called smooth bore, flintlock weapons that are like from years and years before. Uh, and the job is terrible. Uh, if nothing else, just the stench oh, is yeah. just enough to you know just drive you crazy. Fred, I, I need to stop you there and take our uh, last break, and we'll come back and. Talk about more about the guards right after this. Okay. Hello. My name is Colonel Retired Rick White, a United States Army veteran, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I would like to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. 
if you are a Georgia veteran, and the Georgia veteran's definition is you are either born in this state or you lived in the state 10 years or you raised your right hand and joined the military in the state of Georgia, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to your website at www.gmvhof.org or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. Nominations need to be in by the last Friday in August each year. Again, if you're a Georgia veteran or you're a friend or family member of a Georgia veteran, living or deceased, please consider nominating that veteran to this highly noble and rare Hall of Fame for our great state. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. I've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on David's Pick with our guest, Fred Boyles. And uh, Fred is talking about, we've been talking about, or Fred's been talking about Andersonville during the Civil War uh, and the guards. And we only have about uh, 15 minutes, so let's start updating it a little bit, if you don't mind, Fred. Sure. So, um, you know, I've already mentioned about the war crimes trial of of Henry Wirtz that takes place afterwards. Uh, and um, it's also interesting that um, it's just after the war, in the summer of 1865, when a... Uh, and I should back up and say one of the things that, that they really did right at Andersonville um, certainly highlighted so many of the terrible things about the place is that they really kept a good, accurate ledger of the people who died to make sure that their loved ones would know. Uh, and there was so much during the Civil War of families just not knowing. And out of the 12,920 that died at Andersonville, it's a little over, uh, it's, it's about 460, I believe is the number, that are unknowns. So it's a very small percentage uh, so they were uh, carefully identified and were uh, meticulously buried. And so there was a list of the dead, which was kept by one of the prisoners, a fellow named Dorrance Atwater. And uh, after the war, he he was able to get the list of the dead out and of the camp. And um, he appealed to kind of the person at the day in the day who was sort of the the, the most famous humanitarian of that time, a woman named Clara Barton, who we all know, the founder of the American Red Cross. And uh, she appeals to uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and they make a trip to Georgia, and they, they establish uh, the National Cemetery there at Andersonville. And right before she leaves uh, with 
Atwater and a small army contingent, uh, they, she literally raises the first American flag to fly over the National Cemetery at Andersonville, uh, the flag that still flies there, of course, today. And um, it is that National Cemetery which is the beginning of the preservation effort of Andersonville. Uh, later, the, the prisoners themselves, the men who survived, uh, were able to, um, through their organizations, they, they had their own groups in the day. You know, we have the Legion and the VFW. Well, the big group then was called the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, which was an um, organization of Union war veterans. And they were able to uh, work in with another group, the, the WRC, the Women's Relief Corps, which was sort of the uh, women women's support of, of uh, these kind of causes, veterans' causes. And they are able to purchase land uh, that where the prison site was. So the, the two areas are separated by a short distance. And so that land is preserved. And it's not until... Uh, well, gee, I can't remember the year, but it's actually turned over to the Army. So the Army operates the National Cemetery and the prison site uh, all the way until 1970 when that law is passed by the Congress uh, to create the National Historic Site, uh, as well as the memorial to all POWs in American history. Uh, they're, they're, it's mainly led by a group of local uh, kind of community leaders, uh, one of which you might have heard of. He was, a, at the time, he was the state senator. His name was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and uh, he led, uh, he and others were part of that effort to get um, the um, site made, a national historic site as a part of the national park system. And the Army was happy about that. The Army uh, had operated the site for many years. And, you know, that's not the Army's job, you know, so to speak. The Army's job is to... Um, is to do other things and not to operate historic sites. And so um, it wasn't, a, you know, the, uh, for the first, say, 10 or 15 years that the Park Service was operating Andersonville. They were mainly just trying to get organized and, and, and get the whole thing put together uh, and mainly concentrating on the Civil War story. And it was one of the rangers at the park that realized, hey, we're not, we're not dealing with this larger story, all POWs in American history. And so they put together a small museum that was, and I mean small, it was not very big at all, that opened in the late 80s. Uh, but um, that kind of sparked the effort um, to build a museum to honor all POWs in American history right there in Andersonville, Georgia. And that dream came true on April the 9th, 1998, when the National POW Museum opened. Uh, it was attended, that event was attended by roughly 4,000 people. It was carried live on several networks, um, TV networks. Senator John McCain was the principal speaker of that uh, event. Um, and it was uh, for many, many former POWs, uh, this was a, a very important, it was like a dream come true that their story would not be forgotten and so, that it would be So if uh, I came, for, for if I came down, Fred, what, what would I see in the museum? What, what, how, how is it, uh, 
how are the individual POWs recognized or, you know? Yes. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's a little bit unconventional, but it, I think it works very well because uh, the, the, the museum is organized based on the experiences that are common to all POWs. So in other words, you're not going to go in there and there's a room on the American Revolution and then there's a room on the War of 1812. No, there's... uh, Because every POW gets captured. So the capture experience is presented. And whether you're, you're, uh, um, you're captured on the field of battle in 1778 or you're captured in Vietnam because your your jet gets shot down even though the technology is different the capture experience is basically the same and so uh, the exhibits that are presented at the museum are capture journey to camp living conditions communications those left behind the story of the families who are wondering and not knowing what's going on Uh, privation that's where we deal with extraction of information solitary confinement torture those kind of uh, things Uh, morale and relationships and uh, escape Um, a story everybody's interested in but is a very small part of the story and then finally liberation and um, going home which is sort of the uplifting and the, the, the inspiring. Uh, that's the one you, you already talked about, having a box of Kleenex. That's the one that always affects me when I see those pictures and hear the stories of, of people being reunited with their families. Just like you said, that's a, a, a strange sort of I, I my first thing would have been either wars or dates you know but uh, having it that way the capture and so you know that, that's who came up with that idea um well it was one of our park rangers and uh, uh and and it was actually uh probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for uh we were able to to contract with a, a company that was one of the best exhibit design firms in the country uh, out of California, and they they latched onto it and and took the germ of the idea there, and then and then took it beyond. Uh, the other piece to this too, and a new exhibit that was added a few oh I guess about ten years ago, and that was called uh, "What Is a POW?" And that I know that sounds kind of like what do you mean? What is everybody knows what a POW is? Uh, well, no, that's where you get into all of the kind of the unusual parts of it, um, uh, and and that's where uh, Franz Lieber comes in, the Lieber Code, uh, civilian detainees, and uh, you know the the North Vietnamese um, when when our POWs would say, "Well, wait a minute, the Geneva Convention," and they'd say, "Well, we're not part of never it. declared war on us." So you're not POWs. You're not covered under the Geneva Convention. Hmm. So you get into all of these kind of, um, you know, sort of scenarios that are uh, um, cause you 
cause you to scratch your head and, and wonder because, and, and by the way, this stuff is so, it's still relevant today. It's still very relevant today. Uh, just last week, um, the Army issued a decision regarding um, one of the folks from Afghanistan, and uh, even though that individual, uh, he had been, um, uh, according to the Army, he had committed murder. And um, uh, so the Army, but he, he was pardoned by President Trump, uh, but the Army just last week decided that they were going to withhold his medals and his... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't remember the exact... Um, Do you have a Purple Heart or anything like that? Well, yeah, he, well all, all of his, his medals. medals but, okay. um, his... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a, a blank here, but uh, it was his... Uh, uh, he was a Special Forces designation, hmm. uh, Warfare designation. I'm probably saying that wrong, but anyway, um, he was an Army major. Uh, is an army major and um, he's retired now but so in other words again this stuff is still relevant it is still taught today uh, to whether it's to soldiers Fred I'm, uh, Fred, I'm going to have to ask you if you'll come back and we'll continue this because we're running out of time and, uh, uh, what you're saying is is terribly important and as a veteran um you are our history book today, and we have to keep getting this word out. So with that being said, Fred, thank you for coming back, and will you come back again? Oh, sure, I will. And again, thank you for having me and uh, allowing us to share this uh, often unknown story to a larger audience. Well, we're going to keep telling that story. And uh, stay tuned for Ron Bachman, and he'll be with us in just a few minutes. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.